Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you're with us or you're with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. The Buck Sexton Show. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. The future of talk radio. Buck Sexton. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. Great to have you here with me. Hope you had a fantastic weekend. Excited to be with you. First day of our week together here in the Freedom Hut. You want to share your thoughts, 844-900-BUCK, 844-900-2825. Or if you are uh, inclined to use the interwebs, facebook.com slash Buck Sexton or on the Twitter at Buck Sexton. So I, I had some expectations today for how the, how the news cycle would go. And they got a little bit, uh, a little bit changed up, which can often happen. First, let me say we will talk later in the show about the Grammys and about Hillary. What happened? She's going to come back. That's right. It's been a while, everybody. But Hillary is going to make a special kind of sort of appearance on the show. Not really, but you know what I mean. We'll have some Hillary time together. Get excited for that. A lot of things to get into. Um, But I, I figured today it would mostly be preparing the ground for the State of the Union address, because that's what is happening tomorrow. And for journalists, it's so exciting, the State of the Union, which I would know, you know, look, I'm going to watch it. I'm going to analyze it. We'll talk about it here for sure. But most of the journalists out there already know what they think of the speech. They they hate Trump and they won't like his speech. So they'll have to get some. They'll say, well, you know, he sort of sounded presidential, but there was a lot of factual inaccuracies. That's what they're going to say. I had a premonition that we would spend much of our time today just doing the the uh, legwork, the ahead of State of the Union speech, propagandizing from both sides that you can expect when there's about to be a big presidential speech. But then something else got a little bit, a uh, little bit of a change up. All of a sudden, we find out that the FBI. Deputy Director, the number two, Andy McCabe, he is out at the Bureau. And I was watching this. It happened right before the White House uh, West Wing press, uh, you know, the, the press briefing. Right. And you could tell that it was funny to, to go with. I was watching Fox and they're like, oh, wow, you know, the FBI breaking news. The FBI deputy director has stepped down. And I was oh, what's going on with that? And then I just for. For giggles, I flipped over to CNN, and there you had Wolf Blitzer with his usual somewhat blank stare into the into the screen of the cameras. But all these different other journalists and you know anchors and pundits and all this stuff that they put on over at CNN, you could tell there was a little sense of, oh my gosh, like a little bit of a panic. This isn't spo- this isn't supposed to happen because the number two at the FBI was set to retire in a matter of. A few weeks, anyway. I don't know he's getting to his thirty year, or his twenty five year. I don't know what it what it was. It's the end. You know, he's able to get a full pension, full retirement. 
See, government employees, as an aside, still get pensions. The rest of us, it's like Social Security and whatever you've saved in your 401k. Good luck. That tends to be the case. Government employees still get defined contributions that uh, tend to be very nice, especially on the healthcare side. But I digress. Uh, so McCabe steps down, and there was this uh-oh moment of this wasn't a part of the narrative. This wasn't supposed to happen. You know, they weren't really ready for this one in the halls and the corridors of mainstream media power. This wasn't already leaked to them. It wasn't on their radar yet. And so they were uh, trying to position this. I did like watching in real time uh, Jim Acosta, who often confuses, hey, ask the press secretary a question with, hey, I'm Jim Acosta. I'm going to give a monologue now on why Trump is bad and pretend it's a question. But Acosta was uh, right before the press secretary came out. He was processing this information about the deputy, uh, the deputy director of the FBI, Andy McCabe, stepping down. Although we find out now that he actually was told to step down, like you need to go now. We'll get into that in one second. But it was it was amazing and hilarious and a little scary at the same time to watch Acosta be like, "Well, yes, you know they're." The, my sources are telling me that the FBI director has stepped down. But as it turns out, uh, there's also the Mueller probe and Trump and maybe he'll lie under oath. And, oh, by the way, Russia collusion. And have I and I just brought in all these other things. <laughs> it was like you could tell, you know, the circuitry had run into a little bit of trouble. CNN cannot compute. They did not like that the FBI deputy director, the number two at the Federal Bureau of Investigation, was stepping down but a few weeks before he was set to retire. The initial, and then they went through the iterations of, well, how do we make this look as not a big deal as possible, right? How do we make this? And, and they were first saying that it was scheduled anyway, and so this is just a few weeks earlier. And that was, you could tell, that was the, I saw this on social media too. That's the story they're running with, you know. Oh, you know, yeah, he was going to stop anyway, and it's fine. You'd ask yourself, though, very reasonably, hold, wait, hold on a second. He's going to be out in a few weeks. Okay, I'll, I'll buy that. I take that. That's fine. Right? You can't falsify your 30-year or your 25-year or whatever it is, the FBI. We know if, he, if, he re, if he's reached his 30 and he wants to get out, makes sense. But if it were just a question of doing what was expedient, what was easy, why would why would the FBI director step down, a deputy director step down a few weeks before he's going to be done anyway? I mean, I'm familiar with federal bureaucracy, my friends, from firsthand experience. Let me tell you, if you want to kind of fly low and slow, stay under the radar, not hard to do. Now he becomes his own news cycle for 24 hours or so, maybe longer. Well, until the State of the Union tomorrow, probably. Now everyone's like, oh, well, McCabe, what happened here? And the story about how he stepped down because he just didn't want to deal with this anymore quickly ran into some trouble. Because the new FBI director, Christopher Wray, just went and saw that FISA abuse memo that we've been told about now for a couple of weeks. And the next day told, according to all the sources that are now up to date on this one, the latest information, told McCabe, you're done. You're, you're out. Now the storyline from the CNN left-wing echo chamber is, well, you know, 
in response to uh, in response to Trump's attacks on the FBI. Trump is attacking our institutions. Oh, good heavens! Everyone's just pearl clutching and so upset. There, he's attacking institutions. Oh no. Well, actually, Director Ray of the FBI has hinted that the report from the FBI Inspector General may have played a role in McCabe getting getting uh, the boot. Because think about it from Ray's standpoint, right? For and there was also a, an earlier news report. And by the way, the, the media hates the internet, right? The, the the mainstream media hates the internet insofar as it is a means of of checking and fact checking them. Go back a little while, you'll see there was a story about how Ray offered to or or threatened to resign the FBI director. Forget if it was the Post or the Times, it's one of them. The FBI director would resign. If they were if if Trump had the temerity to try to fire the number or tell, you know, the head of the FBI to fire, whatever. Right. He was going to say, you can't fire McCabe. And Ray was willing to fall on his sword, so to speak, for that. Well, that's a long way away from Ray, the FBI director, actually telling McCabe is number two. You got to go now, not in a few weeks when you're scheduled to go now. There's only one conclusion that I can come to from all of this. And I'm not saying that it's the right one because there could be more information. We're working with imperfect information. And at the center of all of this is the memo. But you got to think that this FBI, DOJ, FISA abuse memo has got some pretty damaging stuff in it. That it's going to hurt. It's going to hit hard. And that some of the folks inside those institutions at the very top, remember, not talking about FBI field agents who are, you know, locking up MS-13 and taking care of you know, cyber criminals and all that stuff, right? We're not talking about them. We're talking about the, the top echelon of the executive level of these organizations. But some of those individuals now seem to have come into the understanding. They've come into the light of, you know, this memo is going to come out one way or another. And instead of just kicking and screaming and fighting to prevent transparency, which is what's going on right now, instead of saying the American people don't have a right to know whether one political party weaponize the intelligence apparatus of our government against another political party in a presidential election year. Instead of hiding that information, don't you think that it would be better if we were just allowed to see it? Some of the folks that are involved here may have realized that, you know what? We better get ready for what's going to hit and what's going to hit soon instead of pretending that it's not going to, instead of dragging our feet and delaying. And perhaps that is why you had McCabe pushed out now. Because, in a sense, FBI Director Ray may have done his number two, Andy McCabe, a huge favor. Because it's going to be a lot easier for him to deal with the fallout 
if he's already been told, you know, it's coming. You better get your lawyers ready. You better batten down the hatches, my friend. Than to just let him stay in office and get blindsided by it on whichever day it all comes out. And I can see right now with uh, Schiff and some of these other Democrat members of the Intelligence Committee, I can see that they're a little worried, too. Um, You've got the Intelligence Committee set to vote on the release of this memo. Why should we not see it? What is the argument against and what is the argument for? I understand classified information very well. I spent a lot of years and a lot of time reading through classified all day. I will take you through the arguments that the left is making here and the desperation of the Democrats to prevent you from finding out what really happened because they are left with nothing else at this point. They are left with flailing and whining and pleading and cajoling and threatening because at the end of the day, we need to find out the truth. And the only way we can get there is if we see what is in the memo, release the memo. It's being considered right now, actually. The uh, House Intelligence Committee is thinking about it as we speak. So we will get into this a bit more and also talk some about uh, immigration in the on the eve of the State of the Union address. Your thoughts as always welcome, my friends, my uh, fellow patriots, 844-900-BUCK, 844-900-2825. You think McCabe, this is just this is just the beginning of many bad days for the former FBI number two. What do you think? We'll get into that more. Stay with me. Oh, boy, I got some breaking news for all of you. It literally just happened. I was I was telling you that they're considering it. The vote is we're about to find out. And we just got to hear from the Democrats who are very sad faces on the Democrats. Very sad. You're looking very sad, Democrats, because the Republicans voted to push through Republicans on the House Intelligence Committee on party line vote. I voted to release the classified FISA memo. Ooh. Oh, man, this, this better be good. I think it's going to be really good. Because let's just put this out there. Democrats, I mean, I'm generalizing here, but they don't really care all that much about national security information making it out into the public sphere when it serves their interests, right? They tend to be pretty fine with that. Um. As we know from Hillary, they're not particularly cautious with it. Why? If this memo is not a big deal, if it isn't damning about what was done by the senior folks at DOJ and FBI and trying to stop the Trump administration, trying to stop President Trump from becoming the president, why not say, all right, fine, we'll call your bluff, Republicans. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna call your bluff. Release it. And then, we'll, and then we'll fight it out in public. They're really going to pretend that the sources and methods in this are so sensitive? Please. That's laughable. Trey Gowdy, Devin Nunes, these are people who understand what's classified and what is not. 
They're not trying to get information out there that would be so harmful. Let me just put this out there, too, everybody. If the information is as follows. Pfizer warrant based on Fusion GPS was granted and the following Trump affiliated people were did, in fact, have their communications monitored. How is that information? That information in some in some way, in some parts, has already been released to the press when it was damaging to Trump. That's how we found out about the surveillance and the wiretapping and the FISA and all this. Remember, it was through leaks. Who do we think was leaking that information? Probably senior people at DOJ and FBI, but maybe also some Democrats in Congress. But what would be the damage to national security from that? What would be the damage to sources and methods from knowing who in the Trump team was surveilled and the Fusion GPS was, in fact, the basis for it? The answer is... There's no damage to national security. There's damage to the Democrat Party. That's what they're worried about. That's what this is all about. They're trying to protect their political power. They're trying to save their partisan butts on this one. How do they ever recover from this? If this memo is as advertised, look, I'm going to go through the process with you in a moment of what's coming up here. And I'll let you hear from some of the you know, the, this guy Schiff, by the way, this Democrat in the House Intelligence Committee, he just just seems like a soulless snake of a politician. I mean, just not a good guy. Comes across as deeply disingenuous. But why can't we know the facts here? Why can't we know the truth? I thought this we, we've got all these investigations going on. All How is there a way that the information that may be released here could be so damaging and also false. If it's false, then Democrats who also have access to the memo on the House Intelligence Committee, who have also been able to read it, can say, well, that's not true. What are they so worried about? Oh, it lacks the context? Well, then give us some of the context, some of the additional context. I'd like to know what that would be. This is... This is a, a, a moment of reckoning for the Democrats. I, I think that this is going to be a tough one for a lot of the uh, mainstream news outlets to handle, too. Don't get me wrong. They're going to they're gonna circle the wagons. They're, this is not going to be the end, right? This is not going to be, okay, we were wrong. Hey, America, we've been lying to you about the Trump administration, about Russia collusion and all that stuff. We've just been running with this crazy story. And not only is it not true, But the much bigger and more important story was the biggest political scandal of my lifetime, which is the Hillary Clinton machine and apparatus, which was the media and, yes, a deep state element within the federal government, used some of the most sensitive and powerful tools at the federal government's disposal in a dishonest attempt to smear and destroy Donald Trump and his presidency Ooh, this could be really good. I think it is. I, I, I was skeptical at first, but the more I see these Democrats on TV, I see something right now. I see Adam Schiff right now on the TV screen. He looks like, oh, man, it's going to be a bad day. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. 
very sad day, I think, uh, in the history of this committee. As I said to my committee colleagues during this hearing, sadly, we can fully expect that the President of the United States will not put the national interest uh, over his own personal interest. But it is a sad day, indeed, when that is also true of our own committee, because today this committee voted to put the President's personal interest, perhaps their own political interest, above the national interest. Uh, in Adam Schiff giving you a case of the wah-wah because he does not like that the Intelligence Committee, the House Intelligence Committee has voted to uh, release the memo. An important part of this, and this this also tells you a lot that this is going on, right? But just keep in mind, because I've been seeing some people, oh, I'm a national security analyst for whatever, and they're running around with this notion that uh, that the FBI can't weigh in, that the executive branch has no say. It's actually not true. This is a four-page long memo, everybody. It's not that big. Okay, this isn't this isn't war and peace in terms of the size of the the volume here. This is not some magnum opus. This is just a four-page memo about something. I think we all know what that something is. FISA abuse. Concerns over FISA abuse, but the executive branch will have the ability to weigh in. The FBI will have the ability to tell the president, you know, we don't think this should be released for X, Y, or Z. So what is really the objection? Now, take out Occam's razor here, my friends, and use it like a chainsaw. I mean, just go after it. What are they really trying to say? Why is Adam Schiff so upset? Is he really claiming that his, that his uh, congressional colleagues are being reckless with national security information? Is that, is that really the claim he's making? If there wasn't something profound in this memo, why would they do that? If there wasn't information that we absolutely, we the American people, citizens of this country, deserve to know, need to know, have a right to know, why go through all this? What is all the hubbub about? And yet Democrats voted against its release. You have to figure the only reason they would do that is so that they are on record against it being out there in public so that when they are attacking it, they can at least say, well, we didn't even want this to be released. Not that that really has all that much meaning, but otherwise it's just nonsensical. I would just like to know what the real objection is. I mean, Adam Schiff is leading the charge here for Democrats on this one. They can't find somebody with a little more gravitas than that partisan, leaking, dishonest member of the uh, left-wing Congress, or the left-wing of Congress. I just don't understand how we're supposed to make this all go away. What's really the answer here that they're giving us? Oh, this memo should just be locked in the basement and no one should ever get to talk about it or see it? Really? There's a lot of things that I think could happen here. Look, this is, I want to be very clear. Some of what I'm saying to you is speculation informed by analysis and facts. Because I haven't seen this memo. No one that I know has seen this memo. It is also noteworthy that the people who have seen it are not leaking information from it yet. 
because I think they want it to all be out there so we can all discuss it. They don't want to play this game, which is what the Democrats have been doing all along with the Russia collusion investigation, which is just put out the stuff that you want to put out, even if it's illegal. Put out leaks. You know, Forget about going through a process. Put out leaks that are a violation of federal law, but if it hurts the Trump administration, fine. And we've been given pieces of information on the administration that are damaging. And now we have a moment where we can actually see, well, how did all this come come to pass? What's the situation here? And they just don't want, they don't want us to know. What are we to make of this other than they are flatly and truly a pack of dishonest partisans and liars, the Democrat side of the House Intelligence Committee. I don't know what else we could say. I've listened to their arguments. Their arguments are garbage. There is no argument that is made in good faith against the release of the memo. There's, it's not compromising national security. It's not compromising sources and methods. If it did so, then the scandal would be the Republicans who wanted to release it, right? We all know this. I want this to be public so I can see it and say, oh, yeah, there's nothing here in terms of sources and methods. So that was all just a bunch of nonsense. It's a smokescreen, delaying tactic. The other objection is what, that the FBI, oh, that's great. Let's leave it up to the FBI whether the actions of senior, the senior most echelon of the FBI were akin to a stealth coup by intelligence community action. Let's leave it up to them to see if they want that information to be public. I think that's what the Democrats are trying to tell you. Let them call their own, call their own balls and strikes on this one. You know, they'll be honest with you. Sure. So there's that. That's, I guess you could say, another, another component of this. I haven't seen a single objection yet that I say, you know what, that makes sense. I really want to see what the president, I mean, what the president tweets out. I'm sure he's going to have to have a little discipline on this one. I want to see what the president tweets out when this all comes comes together. We can see this. The House has voted to release it. It's going to have five days for the White House and other folks in the executive branch, including the FBI, to have their objections heard. And then it's going to be out there. We're going to see. We're going to see. This is the kind of thing that could bring down a network, I think. Could definitely end careers. I don't think anyone's going to go to prison over it, but we'll see. Randy in Mississippi, I know you've got some thoughts on the FISA abuse memo. What's up, my friend? Hey, Mr. Sexton, how are you? I'm good. Thank you for calling in. Man, I want our money back. They all knew, man. Comey and all of them knew this was a joke, and now we're paying. How much, we, how much is this investigation cost the American taxpayers for a year? Oh, it's millions and millions of dollars. No, never mind. Think about how much airtime has been used by media outlets running with this garbage. Oh, well, there, we all knew why they didn't want Trump. We all know they had the little old ball game up there, and the American people are paying for it. Well, you know, yeah. there's a God, and he's more powerful than the Democratic Party. Isn't that amazing? Anyway, I love your show, Buck. You keep it up, man. Thank you, Randy. Shields High, thank you for calling in from Mississippi. 844-900-2825. Team, what do you think? I can see over at CNN, I feel like there are just beads of sweat gathering on the foreheads of all the different anchors and analysts right now like oh gosh like what's gonna happen now and the memo's gonna go it's gonna be out there oh no what are they gonna say now 
They got breaking news banner. Republicans on House Intel Committee vote to release controversial memo on FBI. Refuse to release opposing memo written by Democrats. Wah, wah. So sad. We'll be right back. If you think your viewers want to know whether or not the dossier was used in court proceedings, whether or not it was vetted before it was used, whether or not it's ever been vetted, if you are interested in who paid for the dossier, if you're interested in Christopher Steele's relationship with Hillary Clinton and the Democrat National Committee, then yes, you'll want the memo to come out. Yes, one would want the memo to come out, wouldn't we? Or... We can, pre- we can play this game where Democrats, the ones who care so much about national security, they just can't believe Republicans are going to release this. No. There's, at this point, the buildup has been so strong around this memo that if there's nothing to it, well, what are we all talking about? Clearly got something. I, I was skeptical at first, and you, those of you who listen to this show consistently know this. I was like, all right, hold on a second. Because I felt like with Nunes, we we didn't really get what was uh, what was hinted to with the whole unmasking controversy. That that didn't happen the way that I I felt a little bit like they they hyped it up. I'm not saying there was nothing there, but it just wasn't what we had thought, or at least we weren't able to get to the facts. Maybe it was just as bad as Nunes says. Maybe actually this memo was going to let us know that he was right all along. But we have to see it to know. And that's what's going on here. And all these, I see it's funny, how the, the optics of it, all these Democrats in the House Intelligence Committee are all standing around as Schiff. They, they are so upset about this. They're, what's the, the opposing memo, I would note? What are they really going to, if they want to write a memo that's not classified, they can just write a memo that's not classified. So what's the problem? They can respond to this in the press, and they will. So there's no you know, opposing memo. It, it, this is going to be a public document, everyone. So why would Republicans be like, yeah, let's also have your let's let's have let's have your take on this thing floating around there too, and let's make that official? No, I don't think so. We're going to put this out there, and you can all talk about it. And we can see, and if there's more information that we need to know, because if it was out there, then all of a sudden the memo wouldn't look so bad. Democrats can try to go through this process themselves. Maybe when they're in the majority. Elections have consequences. Chuck in Grand Rapids, Michigan. What up, Chuck? Hey, Buck. How's it going? I'm good, man. Thank you for calling in. And also, before I get started, I want to tell you, your podcasts are very good. Oh, thank you. The history one, Shield Tie? Thank you. Oh, yeah, Shield Tie. Really enjoy them. Uh, I could recommend those. Anybody who has a passing interest in these things and would like a deeper knowledge i think they're i'm not stroking you here you did a very nice job at a very short time frame thank you well hopefully you've seen or you you've already downloaded uh the fall of constantinople part two i haven't got the the, the i'm behind by two but i'm gonna get all right all right you'll get you'll get up there though just make sure you get them all all right so what's on your mind okay well what's on my mind is you know we've got to figure out a way that these bureaucrats Stop interfering in elections other than the same rights that you and I have, which is voting. Uh, I think that this is now, as this is starting to play out, you asked, should Andrew McCabe have a few more bad days? This should be just the beginning. I think he and a few other people should be facing, I'll be really mad if he gets a pension, 
and then after they all get fired, lose their pensions, I really want oh, a prosecutor brought on board that will make, what's his name, Romario de Orco look like a saint. I want these people punished, constantly called in. I think they should be investigated for treason because, I mean, they just messed with our very sacred vote, according to the Democrats. So we'll these see. guys should be punished and get the full Flynn treatment. Well, we'll see, my friend. Uh, I agree with you. There should be there should be some uh, equality of treatment when it comes to the way the FBI goes about different Democrats and Republicans. And uh, thank you for calling in, Chuck. I appreciate it. Oh, okay. So, thought we uh, thought one of the producers had producers had an update for me on what's going on. Interesting, right now the the dichotomy that CNN is running is running damage control mode, and Fox is like, we got a State of the Union tomorrow, and the country's doing great, and CNN's like, well, the memo. I mean, like maybe it's not that bad. Like maybe the Democrats will like have a memo that will make it not as bad, and you know, so much whining, so much whining from uh, from Democrats. This is very straightforward, right? Understand this, everyone. Bureaucracies, even good people can be corrupted by this concept. And that is that within the bureaucracy, within the bureaucracy, you begin to feel like you have to protect the bureaucracy, right? Within the bureaucracy, you feel like there is a greater purpose, that maybe sometimes transparency isn't what you need. Maybe the public doesn't really need to know because there's a more important mission at stake. And you don't want the whole bureau or agency or whatever it may be to take the fall for a couple of bad things that a couple of people did. You can see how it starts to be self-justifying in the minds of many who work in these places, especially those who have acquired real power. They tend to be the most political folks that work in these places. You know, when people always say, oh, uh, a, a uh, you know, an honorable public servant or whatever, I'm always thinking to myself, first of all, that phrase is used so much now that, you know, it doesn't really matter all that. If you're not convicted of a crime, you're an honorable public servant if you work for the government, right? I mean, come on. But also, you see how there's a tribalism at FBI. It was true at CIA. It's true at these places. There's a sense of us versus them that starts to creep in. And it's very easy if you're one of the folks, particularly uh, way up in the corridors of power, to think that you're going to give your organization a pass on this one because it'll be too damaging to all the other really good stuff you do if the public knows the truth. This is how you get people at the FBI who have known for months and months about some of the stuff that we are now just finding out. And we're really hoping they can prevent the disclosure of it. Like we shouldn't know how the prosecutorial and spying powers of the federal government have been used for political gain. And those are two of the areas I would note where abuse is the most problematic. You know, if you have a if you have a rogue elephant uh, Department of Commerce, you know, I'm sure there's some bad stuff that would happen there. But no one from the Department of Commerce is intercepting your phone calls and locking you up in prison and ruining your life. 
at least not that I'm aware of. I mean, there might be Department of Commerce SWAT teams running around, but I'm not aware of them. And there are there are actually some really bizarre SWAT organizations, not organizations, but SWAT arms of the different federal, you know, federal agencies. But it's conversation for another time. But when the Department of Justice and the FBI are weaponized, you got big problems. You have issues that require a public airing. This is also how I've been viewing this all along. What could really outweigh our need to know information that goes to the heart of this presidency? A presidency hangs in the balance here. It will completely change the way that all of us, who are at least being even somewhat honest, view the Trump administration if it is a clear and established fact that Hillary Clinton opposition information was used as the basis for spying on Trump to try to bring Trump down. That, that changes, every, changes the whole narrative. The presidency is at risk here. And I should note that on the other side of it, the same people who are the most opposed to the release of this information are the ones who for months now have been just waiting for the day that the Trump administration would end because the president was either indicted or impeached and removed from office or whatever it may be. They've been hoping to nullify the election results with this Russia collusion fantasy. It's a fantasy. It has been from the beginning. I have not had a single day where I have thought, wow, you know what? Maybe they're right. Maybe they're telling the truth. Not once in this entire year plus of this nonsense story that they've been running with. And I just think that uh, we are on the we're on the precipice, at least, of maybe putting this behind us. It would be good for the American people. And also, we need some accountability here. All right, we got to talk about the State of the Union tomorrow, what's going to be at issue, and top of the list there is immigration. We will get into that coming up in just a few minutes. Other shows just talk at you. In the Freedom Hut, we have a mission. We fight for the truth in a team effort. And Buck is back with our next play. All right, here's Buck. The world has taken advantage of us on trade for many years. And as you probably noticed, we're stopping that. And we're stopping it cold. And we have to. We have to have reciprocal trade. It's not a one-way deal anymore. Many, many years they've been talking immigration. They never got anything done. We're going to get something done. We hope. It's got to be bipartisan. Because the Republicans really don't have the votes to get it done in any other way. So it has to be bipartisan. But hopefully uh, the Democrats will join us or enough of them will join us so we can really do something great for DACA and for immigration generally. President Trump getting ready for his first State of the Union tomorrow. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. Oh, it's going to be quite an address tomorrow night, I think, because... It's going to be something of a victory lap for this president. He's going to get to be like, hey, what's up? They told you the stock market would be terrible. It's the opposite of terrible. They told you that the economy would be in the toilet. It is the opposite of that. It is actually going really well. The country is doing quite well. 
in point of fact. And Trump is going to get a chance to say that tomorrow night. I, I think this won't be overshadowed, but it will certainly be a part of the background discussion um, that the House Intel Committee has voted to release the uh, FISA abuse memo. Party line vote. That just happened in the last hour while we were on air. And it turns out that... Uh, Democrats are upset about this. Keep in mind, they're not really telling you the truth about how the Democrat memo wasn't going to be released because of, look, there's Republicans and Democrats in the House Intelligence Committee, and Republicans want the Democrats memo to go to the full House first before it's released. The same process the Republican memo had to go through. Now, Democrats want to do this whole, oh, no, me, 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 I also have something to tell the American public now that we can't stop the memo from getting out there. We want you to fast track our little memo that is supposed to refute it. Well, no. You notice how it was all sources and methods and national security and really important stuff to protect when that was a way to slow down or stop the Republican memo. But once that goes away, once the Republicans say, "Okay, we're actually going to release this FISA abuse memo, we may get to the bottom of the whole Russia collusion travesty that we've been forced to endure for the last, you know, the false narrative that we've been forced to endure for the last, gosh, I don't know, 15 months now. But then the Democrats say, oh, but wait, hold on. Now you've got to just rush through our memo. You have to rush through our memo because, yeah, that's how it has to be. No, I thought it was really important that we have to make sure everyone gets to see it and that we, you know, vet it and all this stuff. So they're not really reporting honestly right now. Many news sources are not really reporting honestly about what has gone on here with the House Intelligence Committee. And there's that. But you got the State of the Union tomorrow night. Let's get into that for a moment. here. Here's what Trump's going to say to the American people. It's going to be great because there's going to be a lot of very unhappy Democrats in that in that auditorium, right, assembled before him. They are not going to like what they have to hear. But Trump's going to give, I think, a barn burner of a speech. It's just going to be great stuff from the president tomorrow night because he knows that he has. The fact that he's gotten to this point, despite all of the forces arrayed against him, is incredible. This whole story, this is the most amazing political story of my lifetime. No question that Trump win in the primary, beating Hillary in the general. I mean, let's just let's just be honest about this, folks. It seems very likely right now that not only did Trump beat the most coddled establishment candidate in the in the modern history of American politics with Hillary Clinton, right? At least Barack Obama could give a good speech. Hillary can't even do that. Hello. So not only did Trump manage that feat, he also may have done it with the FBI and the DOJ at the top level colluding to destroy his campaign and then his presidency. He would have beaten all of that. I mean, I don't, I don't know what to say other than this guy's got some, he's got some magic. I mean, he's just pulling off some crazy stuff. And tomorrow night will be an opportunity for a lot of the American people to hear from the president about just what's going on, what his plans are, and how it's all going thus far. I would note that 
perhaps the best part of tomorrow night, other than, yes, Trump will Trump and all of his supporters will be drinking, drinking liberal tears left and right. That is true. But you have five, count them, five planned responses to the State of the Union address from no less than Bernie Sanders. Socialism is cool. Make it a comeback. It's going to be amazing. Uh, Joe Kennedy. I, I didn't know that there was a Joe Kennedy who's a member of Congress. It turns out that Democrats still believe that if your last name is Kennedy, you have some special skills or you have some ability that we should all vote for you because your last name is Kennedy. You can have been uh, a wastrel your entire life. You could you could have been wildly unimpressive in every regard. But if your last name is Kennedy, then at least Democrats should vote for you. This goes to show you how. We have political dynasties in this country. I do not like it. Look, it's one of the things I really objected to about Jeb! Exclamation point. What is that? Okay, is your last... And I know he actually had a good resume and for, for politics and everything else, but I've just had enough of it, you know? Our third... You know, we got a country of 320 million people. Our third Bush? Never mind Clintons and Hillary and... They're going to... Oh, just give it time. Chelsea. They're going to say, oh, Chelsea, look at all she's accomplished. Never been in a never been in a position where she's really had to fight it out and win once in her entire adult life. Never. But they're going to act like Chelsea has some special skill set, too. So anyway, Joe Kennedy is going to give the main Democrat response. Congressman Kennedy. Uh, and then Maxine Waters is also going to be giving one. I have a feeling that's going to make for some fantastic viewing. I, 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 I might. That one's going to get watched. I think maybe Kennedy, Joe Kennedy's going to get DVR'd, and uh, Maxine Waters maybe my top choice for watching a State of the Union response afterwards. And then also Donna Edwards, I think. They, I don't even know who this person was, I'll be honest. I think she's a member of the Working, working Families Party? I don't know. Uh, she's giving one, too. But, who? I, I mean, who knows? But Maxine Waters, Joe Kennedy, Bernie Sanders, all giving responses to these. And there might even be one more. I think I'm missing. I think there's five, right? I've got four here. Eh, whatever. There's a lot of responses, which will be entertaining, I am sure. So I think tomorrow night is going to be a very interesting night. There's going to be a lot going on. That much is clear. we got to talk about the biggest single policy issue, though, going into the State of the Union address, and that is immigration. You heard the clip of the president just when we came on here in this hour, a bipartisan deal on immigration. What could and what should that look like? Is Trump really willing to grant an amnesty, a a candidate who was more hardline, more law and order than all of his Republican contenders in the primary? Is he really going to decide that now he's going to, hmm, we'll see. We'll weigh in on this immigration issue more right after the break. Stay right there. The president showed them for their insincerity. He dangles out there a big offer, which would probably result in millions getting legalization. And what do the Democrats do? They say, oh, that's not good enough. Well, it's several times better than what you had before, and it's still not good enough. So the president, brilliant. He showed them for their insincerity. We need to get the border secure. There's Congressman Gohmert saying that president has exposed the Democrats on the issue of immigration, saying they are insincere. Well, what do we think the president is likely to do tomorrow night? He's got an enormous megaphone at the State of the Union address. He's going to talk about immigration. 
for sure. We have Andrew Art Arthur to help us work through this one. He's from the Center for Immigration Studies in Washington, D.C. Uh, Andrew, great to have you back. Hey, thank you for having me. Greatly appreciate it. All right. So uh, going into going into tomorrow night, what is the Trump administration's position on this whole negotiation over DACA as you see it? Well, you know, I think it's very much in the air. I think that there has uh, been some very intemperate language on the part of the Democrats. I think that the um, offer that the president made and that the uh, Senate Republicans have made have been generous and, you know, perhaps even a little too generous. And uh, I'm astounded by the response that uh, they've gotten out of the Democrats. And I, I really I, I'm just not clear what's going on right now. It's a little amazing. Do you think that there's a case? Uh, what, what would the case be for? You know what? Forget what the Democrats want. Republicans are just going to secure the border and pass legislation that is necessary for immigration security and enforcement. I mean, why do they why do they insist on conceding? I believe that the opinion that they have is right now they need to get 10 uh, votes uh, from Democrats in the Senate. And for that reason, uh this is the plan that they've come up with to get the 10 votes. I think that they should you know, be able to get more than 10 votes out of the Senate uh, Democrats with this, but apparently not. I mean, is there going to be a better deal for the Democrats than DACA? As far as I can see, Trump's already taken a huge risk by floating out there that he's going to give amnesty for all the different DACA-covered folks. Yeah, I mean, 1.8 million people is an amazing number of people. And, you know, even when it comes to cutting chain migration, it's only being done prospectively. So there's nobody out there who, you know, is in the queue. And keep in mind, these are not people who have been approved for visas. These are people who have been approved to be on the list to be approved for visas. So I can't really imagine a better, a, a better deal that could be struck. I mean, this is a huge number of people that the president is willing to amnesty. And again, you know, he's received a lot of heat from the right uh, about this. And I can't really imagine that a better deal will come down the pike that the Democrats, uh, you know, could get so they really ought to just take this one while they have the opportunity, but apparently not. You they folks at the center, you folks at the Center for Immigration Studies, like to deal with immigration as it is, not as some folks would would hope that it is. So, what would you want to hear from the? With that in mind, what would you want to hear from the president tomorrow night on immigration at the State of the Union? What I want to hear from the president uh, is I want to hear him flesh out more on the border security. I want to hear him say that we're actually going to crack down on the abuses of our asylum system, the credible fear at the border where individuals can, you know, be caught entering illegally, say the words credible fear and get to stay in the United States for years. I want to see some uh, some real movement on unaccompanied alien children, many of whom are not really children, but, you know, individuals who are in the United States uh, and who got here by, you know, claiming to be under the age of 18 and, you know, getting uh, allowed to, you know, not only be in the United States, but be reunited with family members or friends in this country. I want to see mandatory E-Verify so that we can verify that every individual who's working in the United States is working legally. And I want to see sanctuary cities tackled. There can only be one immigration uh program in the United States, only one immigration policy, and that's the policy that Congress sets. And I think that that should be the line that the president should draw in the sand. And what action should this administration going forward here, 2018, after after its first year in office, right, it's gotten a, a sense of what's going on. What actions do you think they should take on sanctuary cities? I'm, I'm assuming tomorrow night Trump will bring up something about it because it's a big showdown that's looming for this administration. 
Well, you know, the fact is that they need to cut off funding. There have been a couple of judges uh, who have issued uh, contrary opinions, said that uh, Attorney General Sessions didn't have the authority to cut, uh, you know, scab funding, burn, JAG grants, things like that. The fact is that the Justice Department needs to vigorously uh, litigate those cases, litigate them all the way to the Supreme Court, because the fact is, if you're not willing to follow American law, you shouldn't be getting American money. Uh, and I also think that uh, as uh, acting director, uh, director nominee Tom Homan has done at ICE, I think that they need to go after these employers. The fact is, you know, these employers are exploiting uh, the labor of these individuals. And if California wants to uh, insert itself into the system, as they've asserted they want to with the Immigrant Worker Protection Act, as they call it, I think that Secretary Hoban ought to call their bluff, and he ought to send out uh, request letters for every employer in the state of California asking for their uh, forms. That way they'll have to tell – every employer will have to tell their employees, hey, ICE is coming to look at your uh, documents, and let's see how many people show up for work the next day. Do you think that the administration uh, would be able – to even if they agreed to only one point, whatever it is, one point eight million. I, I know it's eight hundred. It's about eight hundred thousand that are technically covered under DACA, I think. But they they would be willing to expand it to one point eight million for those who didn't apply for the program but could have qualified for it. I is that I think that's what the number is. But do you think that they? Do you have any confidence they'd be able to limit it to whatever the number is that's agreed to? I I would worry that there are ways that this would expand. I've been saying this now for weeks. And that's the biggest concern, and the fact is that there are 690,000 DACA beneficiaries in the United States right now. It would still be a heavy lift, but not as heavy a lift, for U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services to do a one-for-one match with those individuals to make sure that they are the individuals who have been granted DACA, who have gone through the system, and to you know, vet them again uh, before putting them on whatever path or giving, giving them whatever status. When you add to that, though, an additional one point one million people, there's going to be a lot of fraud that's going to sneak into that system. There are going to be a lot of kids who show up in the United States yesterday who are going to say that they've been here for five years. And some of them will even have documentation that will show that. We've seen fraud in previous amnesties. The fact is that the agricultural worker amnesty from the 1986 uh, IRCA uh, was shot full with fraud. Uh, so, yeah, I have no confidence that we're going to be able to keep it to 1.8 million. I have no confidence that we're going to be able to keep it to 2.0 million. And the fact is that there is going to be an excessive amount of fraud in that system. Is there anything that can be done by the administration to uh, to to just for- force the issue of the Democrats' hand here? I mean, what do you think? What do Democrats really want on immigration? Do they just want amnesty this time, or do you think they want open borders? Because people have been saying, well, they're not even willing to take this offer that seemed like it was well beyond what Trump was willing to get the first time around. I start to wonder, at what point does the Democrat Party just say that we believe anybody who wants to come should be able to come? You know, it, I almost have to agree with the president that they don't really want a solution, that they just want a campaign issue that they can run on and say that the, you know, the Republicans are heartless and they don't want these kids to be able to stay in the only country that they've known or whatever they would say. But the fact is, I think that they're attempting to squeeze the president for everything that they can. We saw how the shutdown worked at the beginning of last week. The fact is, the American people are sympathetic, but we don't want to be played for suckers. And quite frankly, that's what the Democrats were attempting to do. And I mean, if they don't accept this plan, I think it's back to square one and the president will, you know, make another good faith offer. But I doubt it's going to be one that's going to be as good as this. This is a pretty good offer and one that the president's going to have to really 
really try hard to get through the Republicans in the House of Representatives. So, Andrew, I have listeners who call in and they say, I've got an immigration proposal for the federal government. Enforce the law. You're a former immigration judge. Well, what do you make of that as a plan for the administration? Just forget about the deal. Just enforce the laws on the books. Is that feasible? Could they do it? Do they need help? Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's certainly feasible to do it. And the fact is that the immigration laws in the United States are not that tough. If you enter the United States legally, don't break the law. If you enter the United States illegally, well, if you can't get a job, you're not going to stay here, which is why mandatory E-Verify is absolutely critical to any immigration solution that we're going to reach. Because the fact is that if we verify uh, individuals' employment, it turns out that they're not eligible to work and the employer can't hire them, they're going to go home. They're here to make money, and if they can't make money, they're not going to stick around. I remember reading just a few years ago, I think it was in 2015 or so, the Washington Post was running stories on how net immigration was negative from Mexico, the primary source of illegal aliens in the United States, that it was negative because the U.S. economy had turned and 120,000 or so uh, illegal aliens had gone back to either Mexico or Central America, which to me sounds like, okay, well, if if you, you don't have to kick in doors and grab people in front of their families and terrify them, just say, look, you can't work. Yeah, I mean, that, and it's the truth. And the fact is that when you start to have any enforcement of the immigration laws, you start to have a movement amongst people who are in the United States to leave. We saw this uh, back in 2005 with Pakistanis who had to sign up for the NSEERS program. They were here illegally, and they knew that if they got caught, that you know, it was going to be problematic for them. So some of them went to Canada, but most of them went home. Fact is, we saw it with the Haitians as well when TPS was you know, starting to draw down, and there was a danger the TPS, uh, temporary protected status, for Haiti would draw down. We saw you know, any number of Haitians go up to Canada and apply for asylum there. we got to leave it there, unfortunately, uh, Andrew, but thank you very much for calling in, man. Andrew Arthur of the Center for Immigration Studies. Andrew, thank you so much. Team, we're going to come back. Uh, oh, we've got to get into some Hillary time here coming up. Oh, yes. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. The defining characteristic of the Democrat left in this country is hypocrisy defining characteristic. I think that's a fair statement. There are many other characteristics you could throw in there too, but hypocrisy is what really defines them, what really separates them from many others. We have now been through so many months of sometimes very important stories and revelations um, from people who have been uh, abused or have been uh, harassed. Remember, there's a huge span of activity we're talking about here from the worst kinds of abuse and assault all the way to unwanted comments or professional disputes in the workplace about what's you know sexual innuendo and what's not right this is but this has all been under under debate now and and talked about for for many months one thing though that we are led to believe is just certain one thing that we are told we are we can all be ironclad on is that the Democrat, well, I was going to say the Democrat media, the media is all about taking it seriously this time, right? Now things have changed. You know, the, the Me Too movement is a, 
a uh, mantra for Democrat journalists and politicians. And then we find out some uncomfortable stuff about more recent history, even then everything about Hillary Clinton's past and how she went after Bill Clinton's accusers and defamed them and lied about them and was part of Bill's Bill Clinton as president and before as governor of Arkansas, his serial predations. His serial predations. And we know about that, though. We've talked about it here on the show. But here's what's new. Turns out that there was a complaint made against a a senior Clinton staffer for sexual harassment. And what a shock that senior aide to Hillary Clinton was not fired. And this is a problem because Hillary, first female to ever represent a major party on a presidential ticket, right? The Hillary is still because they have nothing else to fill the void. The closest thing the Democrat Party has to a standard bearer. I mean, I guess maybe it'll be Barack Obama again, but I've seen more of Hillary lately than Obama. For sure. We're going to talk about that in a second. But even Chris Cuomo, the biggest bro over at CNN, he called out the Hillary staff and Hillary herself for this lapse. This is who Hillary Clinton is. Let's be honest. One of the reasons that email story got out of control is that she wouldn't jump on that early on either and just own what was true and apologize about it and and, and put it there. And the second thing is they'll say, well, it was 2008. Whatever. You had two people, including your campaign manager, come to you and say, this person's got to go. That was all you needed. 2008, 1978. That's all she should have needed. You know, so even Democrats will call it out because it has become so very clear that the, the Clintons were a rot in the center of the American political system for decades. They corrupted and corroded everything that they touched and interacted with. And people's entire careers and personas were so tied up in the Clinton brand that it will take some time for the damage to be truly assessed for us to really know just how much the Clintons corroded our political system, but also for it to begin to fade away. It's going to take some time. There are a lot of people whose moral authority, let's just say, whose ethics, whose integrity has been hopelessly compromised as a result of proximity to the Clintons. And you're still seeing this now with a lot of them thought that they would cash in on a Hillary victory and then all the sins of the past would be forgiven. I think you could even argue that may be an explanation for what happened at the FBI and the DOJ, right? Yeah, this is dirty what we're doing. We're playing we're playing dirty pool here. But you know what? Hillary's going to be president. All will be forgiven then and we'll have been good we'll have been good fighters for the cause. Uh-uh. Not after we see this memo, you're not. At least that's what I think. We have to see. We have to wait a bit more on that. Um, but Hillary and the Clintons and yeah, we're going to look. There was some fun stuff with with Hillary over the weekend, too. I mean, funny, as in we will make fun of her in a moment. Um, but I, I still think that there's a there's a hangover in the Democrat Party from although maybe, you know, there's a whole other way to think about this. And this is just really occurring to me now as I'm on air with you. Maybe it's not that the Clintons were corrupting the Democrat Party. Maybe it's the Democrat Party is so corrupt that the Clintons were a perfect match for it. Maybe it's not that they rallied around Bill Clinton. Hey, I missed all of you. How you doing? 
Maybe they didn't rally around Bill Clinton in the 90s despite all of his grotesque behavior and lying under oath and everything else just because they felt they had a popular Democrat, somewhat centrist president to defend, but because that's what the Democrats are. That's what the Democratic Party is at its core. Dishonest, willing to put aside any moral compunction in the pursuit of power. That might just be what it is. With that in mind, though, I want to talk to you more about some Hillary stuff because she made appearances over the weekend on social media and, yes, at the Grammys, which were a disaster. We'll get into that in just a moment. You know who I think all of you have probably started to miss a little bit? I just have a hunch here. I'm going to make an assumption. I have a feeling that you probably miss your friend. You probably miss Hillary. Hello! I miss you! What happened was... It's been a while, right? We haven't had Hillary on the show in a little bit. We haven't been able to have her weigh in on all of the latest. Busy with yoga! But she's decided that she's not going anywhere. In fact, she wants to be thrust in the public eye as much as possible, like deep in our eye, like a like a pole that gets stuck there, that's sharpened on one end that we can't pull out. You know, it's just... Painful and unnecessary, and yet here we are. I know! Hillary was out there talking about, well, she was, (laughs) you can't make this stuff up. Uh, She put out a video on Twitter, and this is what, let's just start with this. This is what the video said. Hey, everyone. I just wanted to say thanks. Thanks for your feminism, for your activism, and all I can hope is you keep up the really important good work. And can you say the name of the activist bitches supporting bitches? <laughs> and let me just say, this is directed to the activist bitches supporting bitches. <laughs> so let's go. Activist bitches supporting bitches. <laughs> I mean, is Hillary now trying to be cool? I remember. See, I haven't forgotten. Some of you have forgotten because it's seared into your brain like a like a car accident that you could never forget. But I remember when Hillary was like cool grandma out on the scene. I got a jean jacket. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Leather jacket. It was a leather jacket. And she gave this speech, and it was like Hillary, the, the hipster grandma in a black leather jacket. And it's just, you know, she's she's made so much money, and she's gotten so much further in life than her integrity or her intellect have really justified can't she just go you know write a memoir on martha's vineyard and leave us all alone i mean i i really if she would just stop insisting on being the center of attention i would leave her alone but i'd miss you and i just feel like here she is once again talking about pardon me for saying it but activist she referred to activist bitches (sighs) and you thought that might have been the single most, oh my, Hillary moment over the weekend. But it wasn't. It wasn't just the activist bitches clip that was making the rounds as of this morning. I turned on for just a few moments the the Grammys last night. Um, I would note that the Grammys had all the problems. That I know. First of all, who is this British guy? Like, oh, look, I'm like a, like a loud British guy. And, you know, <laughs> look at me. I'm like running around, making laughy laughy at myself. And I'm funny because I'm British. 
I never even, I never even heard of this guy. Do you know who this dude is who was hosting the thing? Is he like a late night comic? Are you going to tell me? Is you going to tell me he's funny? No. Hey, that's right. I'm going to throw a pencil at the glass here. Um, no, the guy is not funny. James Corden. Corden. James Corden. Yeah, it's not funny. Also, Americans, can you stop being impressed with British accents? It's just another. It's just another. Uh, version of how people speak English, right? I mean, can, can you can we all just stop with the like, you know, this is how Piers Morgan had a show on CNN because so many liberals are impressed with a guy with a British accent, right? If you have a certain kind, if you have the Hugh Grant style of posh British accent, you know, then everyone thinks you must be really smart. But James Corden or whatever, it's just like, hello, I'm so funny. You know, I mean, I'm doing jokes about American politics because I know a lot, you know, and. Oh, just make it stop. So I knew that part of it was going to be annoying, and it was. And I didn't even see the um, who was the who was the one who the, there was one artist. I'm forgetting who it was who made a big speech or did something political, right? Who whatever, who cares? Wasn't interesting enough to get my attention. But something that was interesting enough to get my attention was, you know, I'd mentioned before that I saw Hillary and that clip, which we already played for you, which everybody was like, whoa. Um, I did not expect that this would happen while watching the Grammys, no less. He had a longtime fear of being poisoned. One reason why he liked to eat at McDonald's. Nobody knew he was coming, and the food was safely pre-made. That's it. We've got it. That's the one. You think so? Oh, yeah. The Grammys in the bag? In the bag. <laughs> the Grammys in the bag? Uh, that was Hillary reading from Fire and Fury, the Michael Wolf. A fantasy novel that got so much attention in the press. I'm em- I am I'm em- not embarrassed, but annoyed to say that I bought it and read it because I felt like, well, I got to know what's in this if we're going to be analyzing. Now it's just it's trash. You know, it's 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 clear now based on how that guy was pulled apart in subsequent interview interviews and the things that he says. You know, you know if it rings true, it is true. That's one of the scarier things. One of the scarier maxims for a journalist I've ever heard. Uh, But I think a lot of journalists live by that maxim. I think that is how they approach their work, especially in the era of Trump. But everybody, can we just take a step back for a moment here? The Grammys, which who cares, but I know it's like it's watched by, I don't know, like 15 million people or something. I mean, there's people that watch it. Uh, I know this was the lowest rated one in decades or something, but you know, the, the, the Grammys is supposed to be at least a cultural event of some kind, right? It's a celebration of music. And, look, I like some of the artists. I like the Black Keys, and I like, yeah, I like Taylor Swift. I mean, you know, I like some of these different acts that are out there. I, Tyler, the creator. I mean, there's there's some good stuff these days. Well, uh, Bruno Mars is incredibly talented. I, I'm not here to be, like, the get-off-my-lawn guy about music. I mean, I love music. But can we all just enjoy in whatever way that we see fit, a night of a celebration of music without the idiot left-wing Hollywood progressive brigade jamming stuff down our throats? I mean, who the heck wants to see Hillary Clinton at a celebration of music, you know? Edelweiss! Edelweiss! I mean, you know, what, what do we, we, want, we want Hillary to take the mic? What is she doing there? Why is she hanging out? What is the point of it? I think it's just to antagonize much of the rest of the country, which is really dumb because you know what is 
one of the two most popular and lucrative forms of music in this country right now? It's country music. You know who doesn't really appreciate having, I'm just guessing, having a a uh, completely unnecessary and unfunny and aggressive and stupid Hillary cameo? I'm guessing 80 to 90% of country music fans. I'm, I'm just, I'm spitballing there, but I'm going to guess. Definitely more than half. But they do it anyway. It's bad for business, but they do it anyway because it's a political compulsion. But the Fire and Fury book, they had a few celebrities reading from it. They're all mocking Trump. Ha, 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 ha. Sarah Silverman is there. One of these people whom I have literally no idea why she's famous. None whatsoever. Not funny. Uh, not, what's the, what am I, how am I allowed to say this? Um, not really screen friendly. And I don't get it. You know, I mean, say what you will about, well, at least the most famous Kardashian. Uh, she's got pretty good business instinct, and she's very beautiful. You know, she, you know she's she's a brand. She sells. Uh, Sarah Silverman, I do not understand why she is famous in any way, shape, or form. I don't get it. I just, I'm being honest. I don't. She's there, you know, ah, oh, the world's going to end. Yeah, right. That, thank you. That's that's enough. Um, yet we're, tre- we're, we're forced to hear Hillary speaking there. And then Nikki Haley tweeted something out. She just said that she enjoys, she enjoys, you know, music and just wishes I'm I'm paraphrasing the tweet because the specifics of it aren't really that important, but you know, she enjoys music and she wishes that it wasn't the case that they felt the need to insert politics into everything like they do with the, with the Grammys. We, We expect it at the Oscars too. And there were journalists, fire and fury, is a garbage book full of a lot of lies and half-truths and zero-truths. And there are journalists who are getting angry at Nikki, or, or getting huffy with Nikki Haley, the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, because she doesn't really want to have to see Hillary read from a book written by an author who's spreading the terrible smear that Nikki Haley a very prominent woman in politics and in this country right now, one of probably the 10 most powerful women in the country in the administration, had an affair with the president. You see, this is when you get that inclination once again that all this Me Too stuff that the journalists are running around there proclaiming to be in uh, in lockstep with and, and just making a big show of how much they care about it. You see, with the way they respond to Nikki Haley, that... No, it's really a political weapon for them. And and we've had these revelations from within the Me Too movement, but now the journalists that are running with many of the stories, their political biases come out. But yeah, sure, you know, we had to see Hillary last night. You know, I was just waiting for her to show up on screen, like a, just a giant, they should have just made a huge projection, like 30 by 30 of Hillary's face and put it up there and be like, what happened was... And we'd all be like, oh, my gosh, we can't escape. You know, it'd be like a scene in Godzilla where everyone's trying to run away from her. That's the way I'd have Hillary appear. A giant face that on the screen that everyone has to listen to, and they just are desperate to get away. However, they get, please run for your life. Come back here. I have a speech to give. The bargain at 180000 That's Hillary, everyone. Hero of the left. And they wonder why we don't take their objections about Trump particularly seriously. We don't take him at all. <laughs> I mean, I don't. So, 
uh, because they force this stuff on us because there is absolutely no escape from progressive politics now. Not music, not the Grammys, not sports. We're going to have to fight back and win some of that territory. But uh, in the meantime, let me tell you what's coming up in the next hour. I'm going to give you a little after-action report on my weekend to close out the show. But before that, we are going to talk about uh, the memo with uh, Kim Strassel, our friend Kim Strassel. We will discuss more fallout from that photo of Barack Obama and Louis Farrakhan. And also, how do college kids rate the State of the Union speech that hasn't happened and that they haven't seen? Here's a quick answer. They think it's racist. We'll talk about that in just a few. Louis Farrakhan is a virulent anti-Semite. He's called Judaism a gutter religion. He's anti-American. He is a horrible, horrible human being. And if I had known that the president had posed smilingly with him when he was a senator, I would not have campaigned. You don't associate with a bigot. You don't associate with an anti-Semite. There should be zero tolerance for that kind of bigotry. And if Barack Obama associated with him if the black caucus invited him that's i don't i don't blame them for trying to suppress the truth we should have nobody in public office associating with a bigot like the reverend Farrakhan. more fallout from that photo that was just released last week wow that's that's a bit of a in the vault situation isn't it they managed to keep it from public eyes uh, from being publicized for Almost a decade? No, actually a decade, I think. Oh, you know, within a year or so. That was Professor Dershowitz, who was saying that Farrakhan is a known bigot and anti-Semite. I don't think there's any real debate about that. The guy has said things about Jews, about Judaism, that are disgraceful. He's also said things about America and just about a whole lot of people that are terrible. But particularly, he is a a known anti-Semite. And... Barack Obama was at a meeting of the Congressional Black Caucus and had a meeting with Louis Farrakhan. There was a whole Farrakhan-Obama chat and, you know, get to know each other part of this, from what I understand. And it was suppressed. You can even hear it from Askia Mohammed, who was the photographer that captured this snapshot of Barack Obama and Louis Farrakhan. And here is what the photographer said about it. A staff member from the Black Caucus called me and said, we have to have the picture back. And I was kind of taken aback. The thought was Minister Farrakhan and his reputation would hurt someone trying to win acceptance in the broad cross-section. The people who want that acceptability in the crossover, you might say, um, can't stand the um, inquisition that comes with being associated with Minister Farrakhan. Yeah. But with good reason, right? It's not like Farrakhan's actually an okay guy who gets a tough rap. And No, no, no. Farrakhan is scummy. He's a bad guy. So why would Barack Obama... I mean, let's do... You know, I remember Christopher Hitchens, uh, may he rest in peace. Um, he, had a, he had a test of whether he'd be willing to continue a, a conversation with somebody. And he said... Or, or you know, he, he would walk you through... If you sit down at lunch with someone and they tell you what their transgression was... Would you want to stop lunch or would you continue eating? You know, would this be the end of the moment or would it be or the end of the discussion or would it be okay? You know, and he said, for example, you cheat on your taxes a little bit. All right. You know, hopefully you you cleared that up or you paid your debt to society. But doesn't make you a bad person. Right. 
But he said there are other things where someone said to you, and in, in this case he was referring to the Catholic Church, which he was a very extreme critic of, uh, where you'd say, uh, excuse me, this lunch is over. I'm done. And Farrakhan is in the this lunch is over, I'm done category. He's not in the like, yeah, you know, everybody makes a few mistakes. Interesting, isn't it, that the photographer here had something that he, that he instinctively knew was, uh, you know, a, a photo that would have garnered a lot of attention. And usually people in the press and the media, the moment that there's controversy attached to something that, they, that some of their work, they realize uh, controversy is a, a synonym, really, for clicks, for attention, for even dollar signs. Uh, y- y- so he was willing to bury what would have been clearly a an attention-grabbing professional activity. I'm talking about the photographer now. He was willing to bury that because someone from the Congressional Black Caucus told him to. Now, let me tell you something, everybody. I know you already know this, but if there were a photo of, name a Republican candidate for office, name a national-level Republican political figure with... David Duke. And it, it didn't I'm not I don't care if it existed recently or, or or 50 years ago. Do you think that there is any journalist in the country who would be like, yeah, this photo that's going to be front page news that I found. Uh, I'm just going to I'm going to sit on this because, you know, the cause. This is what we're up against. This is what the other side does all the time. Democrats, the left, the progressives. This is what they do. And we see it and we find it out. We pay attention to it. And they turn on the go, I don't understand. Like, why do you guys think we're so biased? Yeah, because you are so biased. Because we see this. And we know that it would have never happened the other way around. There is no world in which you would have a Republican being able to count on, never, never mind, I mean, the Congressional Black Caucus is covering this up. A journalist is covering this up. I would just throw in there as well. Do you think this journalist completely kept this to himself? I'm sure he mentioned it to some of his colleagues. I'm sure he said, oh, I've got this photo of, come on, right? It's a photo. It's not like it's national security. It's not national defense information, which I would note, a lot of reporters love to share that stuff, even when it hurts the country. Right now, because of release the memo, they're like, oh, gosh, sources and methods. Usually they're like, hey, let's put as much... Damaging stuff about U.S. Uh, national security on the front page of the newspaper as possible. Because, you know, clicks, eyeballs, money, who cares about America? That's usually what you get from journalists. Most of them, not all of them. There's some journalists who are very ethical and patriotic, and I know a bunch of them. But usually journalists are, hey, if it, if it gets clicks, it's going up. But with this photo of Barack Obama... There was a different approach, as we know. With this photo of Barack Obama, the cause was so apparent, and the media's role in normalizing some of the relationships of a presidential candidate, who now they look back on with with this reverence and the greatest president ever. Meanwhile, we look back and say to ourselves, "Hold on a second. So." Smile, take a, you know, we'll take a photo with, shake hands with Farrakhan. I wouldn't shake Farrakhan's hand. I'm a, I'm a polite fellow. I'm probably too polite much of the time, to be totally honest with you. I'm, I'm too respectful. It's, I've got good parents. 
But I wouldn't shake Farrakhan's hand. I wouldn't talk to Farrakhan. I have my limits, right? We all do. I'm not going to be like, oh, yeah, Louis Farrakhan, you know, you're a vile anti-Semite. But you know what I mean? Yeah. No. I wouldn't shake his hand. Why would Barack Obama? But then again, I wouldn't sit in a church for 20 years where the pastor would say things like 9-11 was the chickens coming home to roost in goddamn America. I, I would never do that. I would have left the, the first time I heard anything like either of those things. Certainly would have lasted 20 years in those pews. Barack Obama did, as you know, with Jeremiah Wright. I wouldn't have shake. I, I wouldn't have shook the hand, shaken, shook, of Barack Obama's mentor at the time, Bill Ayers. I wouldn't have wanted to be around that guy. Self-identified domestic terrorist. I, I tend to, as somebody who worked in the counterterrorism center of the CIA, I, I tend to have a problem with terrorists, domestic or, or foreign. Media was like, oh, you know, he was a Chicago guy. You got to do what you got to do. Bill Ayers, Jeremiah Wright, Louis Farrakhan. Just compare that for a moment, if you would, to all the times that the media played this gotcha game with Trump of, you know, do you denounce, sir? Do you denounce? Do you denounce David Duke? And everyone's like, David Duke, who the, who the hell cares about David? David Duke's a loser. This guy has no relevance or following whatsoever. You know, why are they even asking the president about it? Oh, he didn't say he hated him enough. Or, you know, just compare the way that the media plays the game. And this isn't whataboutism. This is called reality. This is reality. Speaking of reality, how do you assess a State of the Union address that hasn't happened? Oh, some college kids are going to let you know in just a few minutes. Woo, show is flying by, everybody. Welcome back. Hour three of the Buck Sexton Show in effect. You know, I'm not usually a fan of the man-on-the-street interview stuff where they're, they're intending to show that people don't know anything. You know, when they ask, you know, who's the vice president, and everyone sits around, and they're like, uh... Bill Clinton, I mean, you know, they just have no idea. I, I don't think that that illustrates anything. Also, I think that a lot of people get a little bit, um, they just get nervous. And, and when you're nervous, you do forget things. This is also why I don't want Trump sitting down with Mueller or anybody else. When the heat is on in a big way, you're not usually, unless you've had training and practice at it, as precise in your thought processes and what you say. It's a really nice way of saying I feel bad people. They're like, oh, I don't know. I mean, maybe, you know, the vice president, who knows who the vice president is? I'm just going to eat my ice cream, you know. And, and everyone laughs at home and everything. I get it. Some, look, sometimes it's funny. Sometimes I think it can be a little mean-spirited. It, it really depends on the circumstances. And particularly when it involves college kids because college kids don't really know a lot. Um, in general, this has been established many, many times over from all kinds of videos and stuff that you've seen out there in the media. and th- But this campus reform video, this is just, is just too good. Because to not know something this is totally understandable. It's fine, right? I mean, I, I sometimes I'm like, oh, gosh, I'm glad nobody or nobody knows that I didn't know that thing because that's really obvious and I should have known that. It happens to everybody. But to pretend you know something gets you into a special kind of trouble. To come out and be that guy who's like, oh, I've, you know, of course, uh, let me, I know all about, I know all about uh, nuclear physics, you know, and you know, you didn't pass high school geometry. I, I barely passed high school geometry. Not, not a good math student over here. Uh, but you know, that would be bad. 
you don't want to pretend to know stuff. And on college campuses, I think there's a couple things going on in this video. One is that people inherently don't want to admit they don't know something. But also college kids are in many ways encouraged, I think, by the academy, by the college professors around them to just kind of make it up. You know, this is the the, the academic terminology for this real rot of the mind. They call it uh, deconstruction or deconstructionism. They'll say, well, you know, you didn't read and this and the extreme version of this is, well, you didn't read the Shakespeare play, but like, what do you think it should have said? You know, deconstructed. And this is nonsense academics, pseudo academic stuff that unfortunately has filtered into a lot of college campuses. So that so they're making stuff up and they're encouraged to make stuff up. You, know, you didn't do the reading, but you're going to have an opinion anyway. It's all about social justice. You know, it's all it's all about it's an allegory about white male privilege, you know, whatever. Right. And even if you they could be sitting around talking about uh, the grain yield in the 13th century in China. And it's about white male privilege and the patriarchy. And it's like, well, I mean, you you did say patriarchy. So there's that. Campus reform does some great stuff. And we all know the State of the Union is on tomorrow. And you know what? If you didn't know that, that's fine. One of the reasons why you listen to this show is so I can tell you stuff like that. You know, all of you out there have got, got other stuff to do, right? Honestly, State of the Union doesn't really mean all that much unless you work in the media. And then you have to pretend it's really important. But, you, you know, one shouldn't pretend to know what they think of the State of the Union if it hasn't happened. And that's what happened at campus reform with these folks. Uh, play it. Well, we've been getting people's reactions today to the State of the Union last night. Some people were saying that it was the most racist State of the Union that's ever happened. What was your reaction to everything that was said? Quite racist, at yeah. the very least. Um, if not up there with most racist. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> uh, it's almost already quickly climbing the scale. Some of the people said today that... Uh, they thought his immigration stance and that he outlined last night was especially hateful. Very uh, what do you think <laughs> of that? I, it's something that I wouldn't have expected to happen in like our lifetime. Yeah, it's like, offensive. Totally. It, it is crazy, but I'm not shocked by by what he's done in the past. So pretty ugly. I, I believe what I'm hearing um, about his his rough nature and um, the hate that he probably said. It's like something I like wouldn't have like expected like in our lifetime because like he's like so hateful and like why does Trump have to be so hateful and like racist? I mean, it's a great gag because they're clearly very disturbed by the state of a union uh, state of the union address that has not yet occurred. It is giving them nightmares. The, the memory of this incident that did not, in fact, happen. It's keeping them uh, quite quite worried, you know. It's keeping them up at night. Oh man, it's great stuff. Nothing, nothing all that surprising here. Nothing all that new. But I just would note that, uh, sure enough, when you're talking to college kids these days, they're actually responding to, and not all college kids. There are college kids who are brilliant, and many of them listen to this show, for example. But they're, the overwhelming collegiate culture is that you just have to know where you stand on certain issues without knowing the issues or any of the underlying facts, and you'll be rewarded for that. You'll be rewarded for it with better grades. You'll be rewarded for it with the respect of professors and your peers. So in that sense, it's all very logical. 
in that sense, yes, it's fun to, to poke at the ignorance here, but it's also, I think, a reminder of how much the college scene currently is overrun by a very superficial progressivism. You, know, you just have to, this is like a perfect example. This would be in, in your day to day life. If somebody says, you know, said to you, well, you know, do you believe in climate change? Just asking that question is an invitation for some virtue signaling from you. And nine times out of 10, although it depends on where you are in the country, a lot of you're like, Buck, let me tell you where I live. That's a question where you get a very different answer. And that's true. But generally, if somebody says, do you believe in climate change? It's the construction of the question itself, not the issue. They're looking for a response from you. You're like, yeah, I believe in climate change. It's really scary. You know, and like the Koch brothers and pollution and like, you know, there's like this stuff is like in the water and fracking and stuff. They just want that. You don't have to know anything. I mean, you can sound like a blathering idiot, actually, as I just did. But you're taking the right position on the issue in their mind. And so that's all you have to do. And this is why I I give a lot of credit to the Jesuit education that I had, especially I had Jesuits in high school. And they always wanted to they always push you to the why. And that was central to, well, some would say central to the history of the Jesuits in a lot of ways, but but questioning and asking why and not just accepting things on authority as they are. People say, oh, Buck, but what about religion requires faith? Yeah, but within the faith, the Jesuits have been always willing or have a history, I should say, of being very willing to question things. So. That's a, a that's the the beginning of all knowledge. You know, the the search for truth is supposed to be what they're stamping on the foreheads of these kids as they arrive on campuses, and it's just not happening. It's not happening in many cases at all. In fact, the opposite has been true, which is that there is a brainwashing that is going on. And you know, look, it was funny. I mean, I don't want to overstate it. You know, the campus reform stuff. All right, you know, it's. Not not the uh, not the end of the world that these kids think that they saw a state of the union. It hasn't happened. I just also think it's funny. I would want to ask them, did anyone do the opposite political spin on this? Meaning, was there anyone who said, yeah, I saw the state of the union and it was great, man. It was like, you know, Trump was just like laying down the fire, man. It was dope. You know, does anyone do that? Because that would be noteworthy to me. I, I feel like all of the. Uh, responses that you'd get that are based on an event that did not happen would be inherently left-wing progressive criticisms of Trump because they assume that that's safe. Whereas if you like Trump and somebody asks you, you can't assume it's safe, right? All right. We'll get into much more in just a few, including our friend Kim Strassel. So stay right there, team. So the memo is dominating the news cycle right now, despite the fact that we have a State of the Union tomorrow. Usually that's all the press will be talking about, but we've got some memo issues to dive into. We've got Kim Strassel to help us with that today. She is a Wall Street Journal columnist, member of the editorial board, also author of a wonderful book that is out right now, which, Kim, the name of the book is? The Intimidation Game. The Intimidation Game. Thank you so much for joining us. And by the way, Kim has also got a piece out of the memo, Operation Sabotage, the memo. Let's talk about that, Kim. What's going on in your mind based on your analysis and read of all this with this memo? A lot of back and forth. Well, it's so patently obvious to me, at least, what's going on here, Buck. And I think it should be to the rest of the country, which is that the Republicans finally got access to the documents that the Justice Department and FBI had sat on and withheld from them for four months. 
Uh, they put together a, mer- a memo that clearly contains some very embarrassing or damaging information to the FBI and Justice Department. And those two organizations have spent the last week uh, trying every trick in the book to try to undermine what's going to come out or dismiss it or scare Republicans out of releasing it, which thankfully so far it looks as though they'll not be scared and they will indeed release the memo. And Kim, the objections to this that you see from fellow journalists out there at at some of the other very big papers, uh, what do they amount to at this point? From what I see, it's uh, it's going to be partisan. Of course it is. Sources and methods, they can redact them. There's a process for this. Yeah, there is, and they're going through it. I- I'm not even clear on what the real objection is to releasing the memo, as in it seems like there's a few different attempts to create objections, but when any of them are given some scrutiny, they kind of disappear. Yeah, there's just a lot of spaghetti getting thrown at the wall right now to see if anything will stick. But look, first of all, the partisan objectives, of course, the Democrats are going to claim that. And I think we should hope, and I would like to hope, that what comes out in the memo has been done in a very straightforward manner, that it's just a collection of facts, um, because that will undercut any arguments that this is some baloney narrative. Um, but look, the importance of that, too, why I, I believe that we should feel confident that that is what is going to be put out. And it also undermines the left uh, and the media critics argument that there is some sort of national security risk to doing this. This memo was put together by Trey Gowdy, who's a former federal prosecutor, one of the smartest guys in Congress who cares deeply about national security, uh, and Devin Nunes, who's head of the Intelligence Committee and also cares deeply about national security. They would never in any way put together something for partisan gain that might undercut the country's you know, security. So I think we should have a, little, a, lot, a lot of confidence that what they're going to put out is perfectly fine to put out and will simply be revealing in terms of FBI's actions. Now, in terms of confidence, where would you state your confidence, Kim, right now, based on just either your analysis of what the FBI has said over this and what we're hearing, maybe also whatever sources that you may or may not have that have seen the memo, that this is, what's your confidence that this is actually bombshell territory and not just, you know, remember the unmasking thing? It looked like maybe that would be a big deal with Nunes, and then it kind of, it didn't have quite the punch that I think some were expecting. This time around, I'm hearing a lot of people say that they think this is the real deal. What do you think? Well, first of all, I'd like to say well, one thing that always gives me a lot of confidence in my own sources is that none of them have actually told me what's in this memo because it's classified. Um, and they're the kind of stand-up people that wouldn't do that. And so, therefore, when they also tell me that what's in here is very disturbing, I tend to believe them on that. Now, we're already getting some reporting that's coming out. Um, The New York Times had a story today in which they buried the lead, but uh, essentially it said that one of the memo's main focuses is that it would appear that when the FBI was applying for a warrant uh, to surveil members of the Trump team, that they did not tell the FISA court that they were relying on a document that had been commissioned by the Democratic National Committee and the Hillary Clinton campaign, which is certainly something I would imagine any FISA court judge would raise an eyebrow at if they had known. Um, So if they didn't tell them that, if they deliberately omitted it, if they didn't do their homework to find out who had was in fact behind it in the first place, all of that is very, very bad for the FBI, not to mention the fact 
that if they use this in any way simply to get a warrant, that's also appalling because in essence, it's the FBI using a campaign document from one presidential campaign to spy on another one. We're joined now by Kim Strassel, Wall Street Journal editorial board member and columnist. She's got a piece you should all read, Operation Sabotage the Memo. Kim, uh, speaking of the FBI and memos and all the rest of this, this transition's not perfect. We'll just go with it, though. McCabe is out. Tell me about what you think on this one, because this has been a big story all day. McCabe is out. Uh, There are varying accounts of why he is out. Uh, Again, I saw a story saying that the context of this was a discussion that he had with Director Ray, Christopher Ray, and the upcoming release of an Inspector General report, which most people are assuming is going to be very damning to the FBI. And Mr. McCabe was central, of course, in all of that. And, you know, we already have a lot of information suggesting that that Hillary Clinton probe was not done in a straightforward manner, whether you look at the struck page text, whether you look at the changes in the drafts and the decision to change it from, um, you know, grossly negligent to extremely careless Uh, whether you look at the fact that they decided not to even interview her until the final day, and they'd clearly already made their decision. So there's an expectation that that IG report will be very critical, um, and that that seems to have been the context for which Ray suggested that McCabe either move to a different position within the agency or go. Mr. McCabe decided to go. Kim, if I had to just ask what your gut's telling you about the, the, the memo, just all the FBI stuff that we're talking about here, Strzok, Page, McCabe, the memo, the Fusion GPS, Warrant, FISA, all this stuff, do you think it's going to come down to incompetence or malfeasance when we finally get to the truth? You know what? I think it's something in between, Buck. This is what I think. There is a certain uh, arrogance that attended Jim Comey and the men around oh, yeah. him. and. And and I believe that they honestly, they got their teeth in this and they thought it was their job to, quote, save the country and that they would then do whatever was necessary. Um, but we expect our FBI to not behave in that manner. Um, I think that they just simply became blinded by their own belief in their infallibility. Um, and when you decide to deviate from protocols and standard things, then that's when you get yourself in a lot of trouble. So I'm not suggesting they were corrupt. I'm suggesting more that they could not see through their own biases. Kim Strassel, everybody, of The Wall Street Journal. Check out her latest at WSJ.com. Kim, thank you so much for joining us. Let's get you back when that memo's out. You bet. Thank you, Buck. Thank you. All right, team, we're going to roll into a break. And when we come back, I'm going to give you my weekend after-action report. It's going to be fun. Stay around for that and, uh, well, and some more. So this is where I give you my weekend update or no, my weekend after action report. Weekend update is what they do on that unfunny show Saturday Night Live. It is not good. I wish it were. I like comedy. But as I've told you many times before, liberals are are strangling, 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 sorry, strangling comedy like nuclear versus nuclear. I, don't know, I just created an extra syllable for strangling but they are like a boa constrictor, just taking all of the life and air slowly but surely out of anything that's supposed to be funny. Anyway, so my after-action report from the weekend, I was solo this weekend, which for some guys means, you know, they they go all wild and crazy because, well, the, the ladies out of town, they figure they can party and go drink with the guys. 
for me, it meant that I I made a little pile of my comfiest, oldest sweats and just changed in and out of them over the weekend and then cooked for myself a lot. Because, see, when I cook, I like to go messy. That's the problem. I'm not somebody who cooks and is like a surgeon as they go along, very orderly and precise. And, you know, I'm like, ah, pizza pie. I'm like throwing stuff around and making a mess of everything. You know, there's like spaghetti on the ceiling. There's a little bit of uh, salt, pepper, paprika, and garlic on the floor. I mean, it's it's a big a mess uh, when, a, when Buck's in there cooking. So that's what I did over the weekend. And uh, my success was with, well, actually, I'm not, I had two successes. One was I had uh, had a steakhouse excursion with a buddy of mine earlier last week, and I got talked into the porterhouse. And as I keep telling you, the ribeye is always the right choice, folks. Look, a great porterhouse is wonderful. It's like a very, you know, very uh, solid cut or you know, a T-bone. I think some people just call it T-bone steak. And I know it's like you get two steaks in one, but here's the thing. A ribeye is just a little naughtier. You know, a ribeye is like you're actually eating something, and you're like, wow, this is kind of part steak, part bacony, in that the, the chewy, fatty gristle is giving it so much flavor. I just love it. So I, I got myself a ribeye, bust out the cast iron, and went to town on it. I actually have to set up ahead of time, just to give you a sense of what I'm glad Miss Molly doesn't really listen to the the show very often, so she doesn't hear these things. I had to set up ahead of time a little uh, emergency ladder to get me up to the smoke detector in the apartment because whenever I cook that smoke detector, I have the fan on, but it goes off and it creates quite a ruckus. But I I seared that that ribeye. I will say that the biggest trick that I have learned, or the biggest two tricks that I have learned when it comes to cooking red meat are you have to let it sit until it gets too close to room temperature. I mean, that's a long time. Room temperature, if you've got a pretty cold fridge, may be an hour. But you have to sit with it at you know at, at a room temperature for as long as you can, at least 30 minutes out of the fridge, on the counter, 30 minutes. 45 is better. You know, that right around 45 is a sweet spot. Because otherwise, the center of the meat is too cold, and you end up having to overcook the outside to get the heat into the inside, so that's very important. This is all very true, guys, by the way. You should be, and I know you can listen on the podcast, which I'm sure you do on your way home, but you should be taking notes here. And then also, when you are done, and this is the hardest part, and chefs are always like, I know it's like real hard to do, it's like real difficult, but you've got, I don't know why all celebrity chefs these days are British, like you've got to take the steak and you've got to leave it on the counter for like six or seven minutes. And it's true, though. You have to let it rest. It has to do with the uh, the dispersal of the liquids, the juices inside the meat. You have to let it rest. It makes a big difference. It doesn't seem like it would, but I'm telling you it does. So uh, the ribeye experiment was very successful. Also made some garlic cream shrimp, which was very easy to do and very a little decadent too because any cream sauce is going to be amazing and not necessarily so good for you. But that worked out well. That was last night. All right. Other thing for those of you that are wondering uh, what what your next show should be on Netflix, Longmire, about Sheriff Longmire. Actually quite good. Kind of a kind of a spinoff almost. It's not, but it feels like one from the, the movie Wind River, if you've seen Wind River, which I thought was, yeah, sur- right? Yeah, Mike saw. Surprisingly good. So I would recommend Longmire to any of you 
Uh, Miss Molly told me I have to save Ozark for her. So those of you who have, oh, and I started The Crown, too. And I had to tell Molly, you know, so you went ahead without me on The Crown. Now she wants me to catch up because she likes it, but she doesn't want to go back and rewatch it. So I'm having to get into some of, uh, I watched some of The Crown. It's it's very well done. I'm, I can't pretend that I'm not, I'm not into it. They do a very, very good job. Although here's my beef with it. I don't think John Lithgow is a very good Winston Churchill. I just, you know, you know, we can't do better than that. I mean, Lithgow does a good job for, but he doesn't look like Churchill. He doesn't sound like Churchill the whole time. It's like John Lithgow is walking around stooped over like, I'm British. Look at me. I'm British. You know, it doesn't really, it doesn't really resonate. Uh, that would be my, my sense for you on that one. Uh, so those are my Longmire thumbs up, the crown thumbs up, ribeye, let it rest at room temperature before you cook it, and then let it rest for five to seven minutes after you cook it. And if you feel like being naughty, shrimp with any kind of a garlic cream sauce is a very good idea. All right, that's the after-action report from the weekend. And, of course, I did another episode of Shields High. I just do this out of love. Those of you who are uh, fans of the movie Forgetting Sarah Marshall, which is not for the kids, there's some very graphic stuff in it, but, you know, sexual stuff... But it's a it's a funny movie. It's an adult movie. It's a very funny movie. I actually think uh, the guy who's the lead in it, Jason Segel, is very good, and also uh, Russell Brand, whom I usually think is a an Olympian putz, is actually pretty solid in it. He's good in that movie. He's terrible in everything else, including in life, but he's good in forgetting Sarah Marshall. But there's the Dracula opera, and I've been telling all my friends that the Shields High series for me is like my Dracula opera. Die, die. I can't. You have to see the movie to know what I'm talking about. But And if I see Van Helsing, I'll slay him. Oh, oh. Do you have any idea what I'm talking about? Or does it sound like I'm having some kind of episode in here right now? Yeah? You know what I'm... Come on, guys. You know what I'm talking about. It's a very good movie. Anyway, Shields High, the latest one is up. It is The Fall of Constantinople Part 2. Story all of you should know. A really compelling and important moment in history. Also, not a happy ending. Pretty terrible what went on there and just putting it out there. But somehow you all know about the sack of Jerusalem and how that was a very violent affair. Do you know about the sack of Constantinople in 1453 and what happened there? Because it's actually uh, really terrible and a whole lot of violence and pillage and rape and all kinds of things going on. Kind of gets skipped over in history class. Well, not on the Shields High podcast. So do check that out if you have not already. Um, I'm thinking that the next, I'm thinking that the next episode of Shields High is going to be Malta, which I know we've talked about here on the show, but we're really going to do it the right way, at least in two parts, and really dig down into it. I just think the the Battle of Malta is so cool, and you know, there's not a. I talked to you about shows, different Netflix shows, and things like that. That I, of course, I I like all that stuff too. There's really not a lot of good historical pieces on, you know, whether TV shows or movies that touch on this period. Certainly nothing about Ottoman Christian warfare, which went on with some major battles for the better part of a few hundred years. Very little on this. And you have such uh, incredible leaders, you know, very rich characters to work with, uh, Don Juan of Austria and Lepanto and the various sultans. And there's just so much good stuff to show on the screen. And there's also, 
the, the different military units, this was at a time when this is really pre-camouflage era still. So people would wear very brightly colored things and they had these you know weapons that were meant to be imposing looking, not just effective. It, anyway, it's all stuff that I think about for another time. I, I would love to uh, do a series on this. Could you imagine if they did like a master and commander style series where they really got into the history and the detail of it. Remember Master and Commander with Russell Crowe? Great movie. Imagine if they did that on some of, on whether it's the Siege of Malta, Lepanto, uh, the fall of Constantinople, although that would be a tough one to show at the end. Anyway, I hope you like this stuff. At least some of you like it as much as I do. We're going to keep it going as long as you're all listening. That's the plan for right now. So share it with a friend. The more it gets out there, the more likely we are to be able to continue it. And uh, with that, please also spread the word about the Buck Sexton podcast. It's on iTunes. You can uh, send it to somebody in email form, copy that link. Anybody who's like, yeah, you know, I need something to listen to these days when I'm cleaning out the garage or something. Be like, hey, check out the Buck Sexton podcast. Thanks for hanging out with me, everybody. Always a privilege and a pleasure. Looking forward to it tomorrow night. Shields high.